We're working in the book of Matthew. Uh, we're, we're in a large swath of Scripture that in, if you have a, a Bible with the words in red, there's a whole lot of red. And we are in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. And uh, just to catch up a little bit, remember that uh, Jesus is about three days from his crucifixion. And so he is planning on his, he is preparing for his departure by preparing his disciples for his return. Does that resonate with you? He's preparing for his departure by preparing his disciples for his return. Yeah. Okay? And uh, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is coming, and, the, and the, the real question is, are you ready? He wants them to be ready. That's the, the key phrase. The key verb is watch, be ready. Ready. So our question, as we look at these this this miniature uh, series from here, right in the, toward the end of Matthew, is: Are you ready? Go ahead and say it out loud. Are you ready? Are you ready? ready or not, Jesus is coming. Yes. I think it's amusing when people get amused. Uh, we we who take the Bible seriously, uh, even though we may disagree with certain nuances of interpretation in in eschatological matters. Uh, There might be some nuances, some differences, but we who take the Bible seriously, we agree uh, on these things, that eternity is real, that Jesus is coming, and that we must live like him. And then, let's go to that first slide there, Faith. uh, We also recognize that as Jesus taught about his return, he emphasized at least these three things that we should just keep in mind, and then we can have some wiggle room elsewhere. But he taught that his, that his second coming would be unmistakable. Unmistakable. I'm not sure. Everybody was excited and happy until that. Now, I'm not needing your response, but I want to make sure you believe that. His, it, it, will be unmis- no, it won't be a secret. No one will have to say, did you know Jesus came? Oh, I missed that. That's not going to happen. It will not be, old little town of Bethlehem. You won't need the Magi to tell you what's going on. He is, it would like lightning is seen on one side of the sky and seen on the other. It comes and flashes. That means he is coming, and it's going to change the fabric of the cosmos. And his coming will be unpredictable. That means you won't be able to predict it. So just write the little address of that person that's trying to tell you, sell you them paperbacks. Nope. Not right. I mean, again, I'm happy. I am thrilled at the prospect. And we should all be, and we're going to talk about that, but it will be unpredictable. The bottom line is, because it is unmistakable but also unpredictable, he also taught that his followers should live with a, a sense of, of ready eagerness. And that's the, the, the gravity of these passages and our passage again, passage again uh, this morning and next week is this, this idea of the gravity of a Lord's return pulling on our hearts and the effect it has on our lives. It's so important that that the way Jesus talked about his return really set a template or a trajectory throughout the rest of the New Testament regarding his return and how and our attitude about his return and and the effect it has on our lives. The New Testament affirms that this attitude of ready awareness, this eagerness for the Lord's return, it does two things. It produces the best in us, and it is met with the Lord's blessing. It, it's the, it produces the best 
from us, out of us, and it'll be met with the best to us. So whether it's this, it's just the best way of living. In 1 John chapter 2, verses, uh, probably 3, verses 2 and 3, John talks a little bit about this attitude that we have about the Lord's returning. And, and uh, just, just as a, a way of helping to frame the whole New Testament voice of the of parable we're about to read this morning, consider these two verses that talk about how, how our eagerness produces the best in us and the Lord's blessing. First of all, 1 John, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Do you see the dynamic there? We are right now the children of God, and yet there's more to come. There's already that gravity, that pull on us. We are right now the children of God. Well, that's it, but there's way more to come. What will be, we don't even see it yet. So our whole life is lived forward in this forward leaning. <sighs> but what we know, but pardon me, but we know that when Christ appears, and that's our hope, right? Say when Christ appears. Yes. When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who, verse three, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So having this hope, having this longing has a purifying and influence upon us. It, it, it creates a wholesome and holy affections within us. When I, when I have the, this hope, this hope, and not only who I am now, but who I'm going to be and what's going to happen when I see Christ, it helps me to throw off hostile and carnal behavior. Why do we mention hostile and carnal behavior? Because in the parable we read last week, that's how he described the wicked servant. The wicked servant who lost patience, who thought, oh, my master's not coming. He turned and began to treat others with hostility and indulge in carnality. And those are signs that you have taken your eyes off of his return. But it's also met with the Lord's blessing. It produces the best in us. It creates a pure lifestyle but it also is met with the Lord's blessing. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but to all, but also to all who have longed for his appearing or loved his appearing. But the idea is it's not just a love like, like a Hallmark movie, affection. Aren't just, you don't just have warm fuzzies about his coming, but you have a longing for it, an urgency in your being for Jesus to come. And when you live with that longing for his return, you live in such a way that Jesus is able to meet your life with his blessing, with his reward, with the very applause of heaven. Yeah. I'm telling you that if you live ready for Jesus, you will have the best kind of life and the best kind of reward. Jesus, so Jesus continues teaching about his return to his disciples. And it's so important that we remember who he's talking to. He has left the mount, uh, the, the temple mount. He's gone to the Mount of Olives. He is talking to his disciples. He's talking to, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, lean in. These words were written for you to read. Look with me now in Matthew 25, just the first 13 verses. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 
ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. I'm reading that slowly because we're listening to what, who, who is in the parable, who does what's the same and what's different, and what is Jesus emphasizing in the text. And, and, he's, and, in these, and he gives us, he makes a point to say the, there are foolish and there are wise. Remember, if Jesus introduces a parable and saying there are some foolish and some wise, which should you sign up for? Don't ever, it's option, the foolish option, never a good option. Don't, well, I wonder what that one's like. No, no, don't do it, okay? The foolish did not take any oil, the wise did. Verse five, the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, don't get sad there. Well, I'll say in a minute, that's the, it's fine. This, in this parable, sleeping is just what people do. God made you, God gave you sleep. You need to sleep, it'll keep you healthy, do that, okay? At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom. That's fine, NIV, here's the bridegroom, but I'm pretty sure the King James said, the bridegroom cometh. And that just sounds better. (laughs) The bridegroom cometh, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps and the foolish one said, "Huh, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. In verse 9, no, they replied, there, are, there may not be enough for both us, both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Get yourself some oil. Get you some yourself. Verse 10, but while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready, the virgins who were ready, those who were ready, say it, those who were ready? Those who were ready, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. Those who were ready. Those who were ready. That's it. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Now, that probably is the parabolic punch. Remember, we talked about how parables have punchlines, unexpected. Whoa, what just happened? That could be it. There's some nuances of maybe, maybe not. But uh, it seems like uh, that because these wedding feasts often went, were a seven-day uh, celebration. I know some of our younger brides might say, seven days? That'd be awesome. Imagine. My wife would have loved seven days of presents. Um, uh, 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 seven days of cake. Uh, uh, but uh, seven days, it would not perhaps have been unlikely, you know, for Aunt Thelma to come and say, well, you know, I can't get there till Wednesday, dear. And then when she comes and then they're happy when Aunt Thelma finally arrives. That was somewhat normal, right? But in this parable, if you weren't ready, you didn't get in. Boom. That, and I believe that's probably would have been the shock to the disciples that, whoa. And these were people that were part of the wedding party. You got to feel like, whoa, there's a real whoa here. Therefore, verse 13, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. 
the, the setting for this teaching on Jesus, on the return of Jesus, the setting is a Jewish wedding. And there couldn't be, I don't believe, there couldn't be a more fitting, a more fitting metaphor, analogy for the Lord's return than a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding, as we said a moment ago, it was, it took, it, it was a seven-day affair. It was a, it was a sacred and great occasion. Even the rabbis taught that, if, that, that you could stop studying or teaching the Torah if a, it's right, if, thank you, if a wedding party, a procession went by. It was so sacred, so great, so such a, such a wonderful occasion. I know, and what really makes it, I believe, uh, more fitting is something that's not necessarily in the text, but would be very much understood by those, the first audience and the readers of the text. What makes the, the return of Jesus and the, 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 the imagery of a Jewish wedding so appropriate is the Jewish wedding has three parts. Jewish wedding has three parts. The first part is the engagement. And in the engagement, it's either the father or the groom or both, they go to the house of the bride. They leave their house and they go to the bride's home where they negotiate a price, a dowry. And there is a price paid for the bride, and therein a covenant is begun. So somebody from the father's house comes to where the bride lives to, 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 with, with payment to secure payment for that bride so that she might be brought back to the father's house. And therein a covenant is there is a covenant agreed to. Pretty exciting. And then the second stage is called the betrothal. Now you might have heard that because you've heard the Christmas story, right? Joseph and Mary were betrothed. It means they they were they, the engagement was passed, but they hadn't they hadn't got to the final part yet. But they were betrothed. What does it mean? What is it? What was the betrothal period? The betrothal period is after the engagement, after the engagement, the groom would go back to his father's house. Come oh on. <laughs> they would, the, let's just walk through this again. He goes to the bride's house, pays for their covenant, and then goes back to his father's house to prepare a place for them to live. And in the meantime, that bride lives in covenant with her groom. Yes. She lives like she belongs somewhere else. She, be, she lives with an identity of some, somewhere else than she is. She's still at her father's house. She still lives at home, but she's got a different identity. She lives like a stranger and an alien. She lives like a, like a traveler, like a person who's only there going to be a while. She lives like someone who's got an appointment to be somewhere else. And she has a different, she doesn't live like everybody else anymore. She don't, she don't go to the dances and stuff. I mean, she, whatever she, you know what I'm talking about? She lives differently because she, now she lives in covenant. And during that time, the bridegroom sends letters, communication to the bride. 
He sends communication. He talks to her. He sends, he sends communication letters affirming affection and covenant and loyalty. And the bridegroom sends gifts. It is a time, the betrothal is a period of time that is marked by the sending of letters and gifts from the bridegroom to the bride. And each of those gifts is affirms, gives assurance, gives influence. With each, time, each letter received, each gift received, makes the, the, the bride's heart is turned even more in love and loyalty and hope toward the groom. How could anybody say, well, you know, gifts really aren't for today. We really shouldn't have those gifts of the Spirit. We really shouldn't have all. All of that is the assurance and the influence of heaven. All of that is heaven reminding you who you are and whose you are and where you're going and to pull our hearts. That's why Jesus, that's why Jesus insisted that people repent when they were healed because healing is an inbreaking of the world to come. It is a sign of the Father's heart toward us and it's, it is intended to turn our hearts toward heaven. What a wonderful season betrothal is. And then... During that betrothal, se- betrothal season, uh, there's a story that we read. I read uh, in one of the, one of the, the historical commentaries that a minister that went to went to, to Palestine some years ago. It could have been it could have been ten or twenty or more, but he was there and he saw that in his travels he saw dancing down the street were literally ten ten young ladies playing instruments and singing and dancing. And he says, "What the beans is going on here?" And they said, "They, they said, well, those are bridesmaids." And they are with. They are helping wait with the bride for the bridegroom. And he said, "Oh my! Well, that's quite something. How? When is he coming?" And and here's the guy said, "Oh, we don't know. We don't know. It could be. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be two weeks. We don't know." He said, "That's part of the. That's part of the party. We don't know when he's coming. As a matter of fact, it's become quite a game. And most of the time, they wait until midnight." And you have to have torches because you can't go out in the streets at night without them. And really the torches, the lamps are replaced what would be like even flowers or bouquets as part of the procession. But when he comes, there's only one, there's only one clue that you, that you have when, when the bridegroom is going to come. And that is a shout will go out. And that leads us to the final part is when the bridegroom does come from the bride, that's the actual wedding. And the bridegroom comes from his father's house with, with a procession. The son of man comes with his angels. He comes with a procession after the cry goes out and then he, le- he goes to the bride's house and leads a processional back to the father's house for a great banquet. And this is the scene that Jesus uses to challenge his followers to be ready. Ready or not, Jesus is coming. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. It'll be like the the people waiting. It'll be like these 10 bridesmaids. And he says, five of them were foolish and five were wise. And again, he distinguishes the foolish and the wise from whether or not they had prepared whether they had uh, had extra oil. 
Now, the torches that they had were not like uh, some of your study Bibles or whatever. You might They might actually show you a little picture of that little lamp that looks like from I Dream a Genie or Aladdin, okay? Uh, those, little Helen, those little Hellenistic lamps. They did have those. Those were in homes, uh, but that's not the lamps that we're using. Those little, those little lamps would have not have done much good outside at night on the street. This would have been a torch, a much more like a lamp, like a, with a stick and a thing, and would have had uh, rags wrapped around it. And because of that, um, if you, the oil on those would have only lasted for about 15 minutes. And so if you didn't have extra oil, you weren't prepared. So preparation required extra oil. And the foolish took their lamps but did not take oil with them. The foolish did not make any adjustment for anticipating the bridegroom. They, they did not make any adjustment in their lives. They made no provision for endurance, but the wise did whatever was necessary to be ready. The wise made whatever adjustment, whatever sacrifice, the wise made different choices in order to be ready for the bridegroom. They chose a different path. They chose a higher ground. The wise did whatever was necessary. Now, verse 5 says the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and then everybody fell asleep. The, 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 the essential part of verse 5 is the, the idea is that he took longer than they thought. Now, them falling asleep, please don't. I realize that there are some parts of the, of the Bible that warn, oh, sleeping bad. But this is not sleeping bad. This is sleeping normal. Sleep is not the point here. What ha- what, what, it's what happens when they wake up that is the point. And at verse 6, at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And there will be such a cry that we already read in chapter 24, there will be a sign and then the sun and then the angels and then the gathering. And then in verse 7, they all woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. And in verse 9, No, there may not be enough. You go get some yourself. But while they were on their way to go get to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived, and those who were ready went in. Those who were ready went in. What was the only way that someone was going to be able to get in? What did they have to do? Had to be ready. And the door was shut. There's much said about this, and this, there's a, this, this verses uh, uh, 7 through 10 kind of form a, an interpretive axis for us to wrestle with. Um, there's much said. Some, there are folks that, that, that stress the importance of the oil, and I would stress the importance of the word ready, but oil is mentioned a lot. And so we think we should go, hmm. And so because it's mentioned a lot, there's been a lot of historical interpretation applied to what that oil is. Uh, The early, early Catholic theologians, those from hundreds of years ago, because Catholicism has as part of its salvific theology the necessity of good works, not like that just good works that, that, you know, produce fruit in keeping with repentance type of good works, but actual good works that you have to have enough. Right now, we don't embrace that. We don't believe that 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 good works are salvific. But they did. So they thought, hey, if they didn't, if they're if you don't got enough good works, you're not ready. 
Now, I don't embrace that doctrinally, but practically, I don't got a problem with it. I don't, you sh- it, it you, there should be good, you, people who are followers of Jesus, your life should be characterized by goodness. Yes. You should be doing good things. So I'm certainly not going to argue against it. Your life, there should be good works in your life. And, I, and Jesus is going to be looking for it and looking for an opportunity to reward it. Yes. The evangelicals, post-Reformation, etc., the evangelicals was, would usually said that the oil was simply rather, that was genuine faith, that the, the, the wise bridesmaids had genuine faith and the foolish ones did not. Well, I'm not quite sure if, where they get their genuine faith thermometer, but... I'm certainly not going to argue against the importance of having a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Some sort of pseudo-phony, unconverted, I'm a fan of Jesus but not a follower, I don't think that makes you live ready. I think a genuine faith is, is one that you live close to Jesus, you follow Jesus as closely as you can until the, you can't tell the difference. You live you live with, with fully devoted, as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty good oil. And then you got the Pentecostals. I'll tell you. You know if you're a Pentecostal, if you see oil, if you see oil, that's the Holy Ghost. And if you, there's no other way to look at it. If you're a Pentecostal, you see oil, oh, that's Holy Ghost. And if they're full of, the five foolish didn't got enough oil, and then got the Holy Ghost. And you know what? Fine. I'm fine with that too because if you're going to follow Jesus, you better be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need his vital influence in your life. You need his sanctifying work, his empowering work, his holy influence, his fruit, his gifts, his life. He is life. He's the life giver. He's the sanctifier. He's the all the things. You need use of the Holy Ghost. So I'm not going to argue against them either. As a matter of fact, we, we changed, we, we reinterpreted this parable. We did, didn't we? We sang, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil. And then in youth group, we changed it. Give me fuel in my Ford, keep me trucking. Because back in the day, youth pastor says, well, we can't take anything serious. Let's just give them something to play with. Give them some blocks and some candy. Okay. I don't know what fuel in my Ford had to do with following Jesus. But really, including all those things, oil is about what you do or you do not do because you want to be ready for Jesus. It is the choices you make. It is the life you live because you want to be ready for Jesus. And sure, that means good works. Sure, you better believe it means genuine faith. My God, you better believe it means staying full of the Holy Ghost. Some, <laughs> some rebuke, some have some unkind words for the five that didn't share their oil. They say, well, that wasn't a Christian. It's funny, they mean they just, they really personalize, they, they create sentient beings out of characters in a parable. You realize these are just stories, right? But, well, they're, they're, but they, they create, well, those five, though, they weren't very Christian. They didn't share their oil. God, y'all ought to share your oil. But you know, friends, there are some things that you just can't share. There are some things that you cannot borrow. 
You can't borrow character. You can't borrow faithfulness. You can't lend someone the choices that you've made. You can't lend someone the choices that you've made. You can't lend someone the sacrifices that you've made. Funny, the word sacrifice always sounds sad, but sacrifice is really, I'm going to let go of something less valuable that's in my hand in order that I might receive something more valuable. But that takes wisdom. You can't lend someone those choices. You can't lend your character. So at the last minute, I can't run up to Jim Davenport and say, ooh, you know what? I need some of your character. The only thing Jim can say to me is, you're going to have to get your own. I need some of your good works. I need some of, Dan, I need to borrow some of your, some of your acts of service for the church. Dan's going to say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get your own. Oh, Michael James, I need to borrow some of your concern for the, the poor and the oppressed in the world and the, what you've done for them. Michael can only say, you're going to have to get your own. Aholus, could I borrow some of your decades in service for the church? You have enough. <laughs> really, you have enough to spare between the two of you. <laughs> and the Aholus can only say, we're sorry. You're just going to have to get your own. Living ready takes a lifetime. Whatever lifetime you have left, it takes that. Whatever life you have left, living ready takes it. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. You can't borrow it from somebody else. You You cannot borrow someone else's readiness. You're just going to have to get your own. Those that were not ready tried to go get ready, but they found out that if you are not ready, you will not be. The others came and said, Lord, here we are. We got ready. He said, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Interesting. I mean, it, there's a, this, is, this might poke a little bit, but essentially it sounds like he said, you lived like you didn't know me. Now I have shut the door and I don't know you. Therefore, verse 3, here's the therefore. There's thir- verse 13, here's the therefore. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day of your Keep watch. This is the main verb. This is the imperative. Keep watch. And that it's really important that we hear like, well, what's Jesus saying? Keep watch. He's not beating up on you. He's not, he's not shame squatting you. He's not condemning you. This is not a message of condemnation. It is a message of hope. It, listen, the truth is there may be those within the sound of my voice this morning online or in this, even in this room, and there may have been times in your life that you have run out of oil but it's not too late. 
Even if you find yourself a little low this morning, it's not too late. As long as you have breath in you and the bridegroom is still coming, you can go get you some oil. You can, you can start making choices that honor and, and are made out of a hope in Christ's return. You can start living with a longing for Jesus' return and, making your, and living your life in anticipation thereof. You can, get, you can get yourself some oil. You can repent, you can obey, you can be filled with the Spirit and follow Jesus for the rest of your life. But let us be clear that living ready is not for the short-termers or the part-timers. And we need to remember that this parable is being shared with the disciples on the mount privately. There are millions of people in this world who have at one time said they want to follow Jesus, who have signed up to be part of the wedding party, but somewhere along the way they ran out of oil. And it is part of my prayer, my deep prayer, and fresh petition that they would all come home. I don't believe the bridegroom has any delight in shutting the door on anybody. Whatever you do, within the sound of my voice this morning, live ready. Have this hope within you. And long for his return. Because ready or not, Jesus is coming. Let's pray. If the cry went out today, the bridegroom comes. Would you be ready? I don't mean, would you be nervous? I mean, I imagine I'd feel all kinds of things. I'd shout with joy and shriek at the awesome wonder of the return of Jesus. But would you be ready? Are you living for his return? Is the coming of Jesus, his lordship, is it first in your heart and your life? Are you making your choices, your priorities? Preparing, living for, I'm going to be ready for Jesus. Your heart is far from him. If your actions, your choices have been far from him, repent today. And live the rest of your life ready. It'll take, living ready will take the rest of your life. Don't look back and worry about the times that you've run out of oil. Live forward from here. It'll produce the best in you and you will receive a blessing from heaven if you live ready for Jesus. Let's stand together, shall we? And I'm going to ask the worship team just to sing this chorus over us as we reflect.
boy, there's not just a, couldn't be a greater expression, a more sincere and simple expression of a life that is lived ready than the chorus we just sang. So Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would squeeze, you would compel, you would draw us, your people, to live with that joyful, eager readiness for your return. Help us to do so in the name of Jesus. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? May the Lord bless you. May you have a fantastic Sunday. Be kind to someone and live ready for Jesus.